This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, May 4th, 2023 on your public radio station, KUAF. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later this hour, Timothy walks us through the upcoming week in live music, ranging from hip-hop to Americana and just about everything in between. But we begin today's show with a worker's strike. Last month, nearly a 1,000 workers at a Tyson plant in Van Buren found out their poultry facility would close May 12th. This led about 100 of these employees, many of whom who've worked on the processing lines, to strike outside the plant. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to workers who said they were protesting the company's handling of their severance and poor working conditions. on the poultry lines at the Van Buren Tyson plant, deboning chicken for over 16 years. She is the sole breadwinner in her family, has been injured on the job, and says she still has years to go before retiring, leaving her with few options as the plant closes this month. We're asking that they have compassion for us because we've given our lives to Tyson. Tyson Foods, the largest meat producer in Arkansas and the nation, told its employees at the Van Buren location that they would receive a $1,000 bonus if they stayed until the plant closed. Workers had the option of moving to plants in either Texas or Northwest Arkansas, but each location would require a drive of more than an hour. Yesenia Recinos has spent 19 years at the poultry plant in several different positions, primarily as a line production worker, she said. It's impossible for us. It means leaving everything I've done here. I've been here for 30 years. How am I going to move to another state or even an hour from here or to Texas? It's easy for them to say it, but for us, it's difficult. Like Recinos and Rubalcaba, more than 300 employees signed a petition on April 11th to supervisors with four main points. First, a full payout of their accrued vacation time. Before the strike, workers alleged that Tyson would only buy out up to 60% of the time that some workers had collected for 10, 20, or even 40 years. Secondly, a full severance package based on the length of employment, safe conditions and accountability for injuries on the job, and finally, equal treatment compared to supervisors and corporate employees. Over 60 workers continued to strike for a week, with their protest ending in a caravan to the company's Springdale headquarters, where they delivered a letter detailing their grievances to Tyson CEO Donnie King. There, Tyson made verbal commitments to the workers' delegation to pay out all their vacation time, not increase employees' workload before the plant closes, and address workers' injury claims. In an email, Tyson spokesperson Derek Burleson said that the company is, quote, coordinating a job fair for the displaced workers. Plus, Burleson said Tyson was providing relocation assistance with financial incentives up to $15,000, though he gave no further details. The interviewed Van Buren workers said that they were not made aware of any relocation incentives. 
According to Magali Licoli, director with Venceremos, a labor rights advocacy group, quote, workers tried to organize before, during the pandemic. They thought it was against the law to even have strikes. Many striking employees claim that they were unaware of their legal rights and the existence of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, until they organized with Venceremos. For instance, Edgar Cardenas said that after spending 16 years working for the plant, he had never been told how or where to report unsafe working conditions. Yo el tiempo que he trabajado para Tyson I saw so many things that I didn't know were against the law in the time that I've worked for Tyson. They were always using different words to conceal things from us. Nearly all of the workers who were striking are migrants from Mexico, El Salvador, or Laos. Employers are required by law to place posters informing workers about their rights and responsibilities, but companies are merely encouraged, not required, to post them in Spanish or other languages. Liliana Ledesma is one of the 10 Tyson strikers who spoke with KUAF and Facing South in Spanish about the injuries they have sustained from poultry assembly lines and about being undervalued and mistreated on the job. She has worked at the plant for 18 years. Ledesma spent months complaining to management and in-house infirmary about the constant pain in her arm, worsened by her position on the processing line. Ledesma was told to keep working through the pain, which has significantly impaired her life. She says, quote, I can't even comb my own hair. I can't lift my arm because of the pain. Another worker, Aurora Delgado, who is a mother of five, has been with the plant for over 24 years. She showed me her many injuries from the plant, including surgery scars on her arm and a broken foot from the slippery floors covered with water, oil, and chicken grease. All of the striking workers who were interviewed cited concerns about working on a constantly slick floor. Three other employees specifically mentioned trench foot a debilitating condition caused by prolonged exposure to wet conditions that can lead to serious infections and even amputation. Delgado, like many of the workers who are waiting for Tyson to address their workplace injury claims, went to the plant's infirmary on multiple occasions, only to be treated with cream and Tylenol for searing pain. After numerous visits, Delgado went to a doctor outside her Tyson insurance network. They recommended surgery for her left forearm. The pain in my arms has become unbearable, says Delgado, who is applying for disability rather than new jobs because of the injuries she sustained at Tyson. They won't employ me elsewhere with both hands hurt. Tyson did not respond to specific questions about its practices around workplace injuries. Strikes like the one in Van Buren are rare in Arkansas's labor history, with the most recent poultry walkout happening two years earlier at Georgia's Incorporated, a smaller processing plant in Springdale. According to Venceremos director Magali Licoli, quote, that protest was the first of its kind in recent history, end quote. The Georgia strike lasted for a day and had a third of the number of striking workers than the Van Buren protest. The strikers are frustrated because the company that lauded their essential work during the COVID-19 pandemic 
now appears to be turning its back on them. During the pandemic, they supposedly recognized our work by putting a plaque on the front door saying we are the heroes, says deboning worker Maria Rubalcaba. But now they're throwing the heroes away. Olivia Pascal contributed to this report. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Ahead on Ozarks at Large, examining the future of Medicaid eligibility in Arkansas. During the pandemic, the federal government made it much easier for individuals to receive Medicaid benefits. Now, the Biden administration has announced the end of the national emergency and public health emergency declarations to be May 11th, leaving it up to states to decide who is or is not eligible for Medicaid anymore. They will all go through an eligibility redetermination process. And if they fit the requirements from an income standpoint, from a disability standpoint, from a diagnosis standpoint, uh, for pregnancy, for example, then those people will remain eligible. Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics talks with Craig Wilson, Health Policy Director for the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, to help us understand the future changes coming to Medicaid coverage. That's in about 15 minutes on Ozarks at Large. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, welcoming Grammy-winning singer and guitarist Melissa Etheridge to the Auditorium in Eureka Springs this Friday, May 5th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets on sale now at tickets.thundertix.com. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville. WRegional.com slash HerHealth to learn more. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. More people of color and women became primary operators of farms in the past decade. That's according to a U of A study of interest paid on USDA agriculture loans and census data. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports, researchers found white male-operated farms still remain the biggest users of agricultural credit. The number of U.S. farms had a nearly 3% decline from 2012 to 2017, and the share of beginning farms increased regardless of the producer's race, gender, or ethnicity, according to the study. Although researchers found access and use of credit, Bruce Aronson, U of A agriculture economics professor and the study's lead author, says they don't always know if credit was accessible to everyone. He says some farms are still not using agriculture credit. And I think that's where uh, we want to really look at the policies and the type of programs to make sure they're well matched to beginning farmers and ranchers, no matter what the race, gender or ethnicity of that operator is. Aronson says there is some progress in reaching historically underserved emerging farmers. Farmers of color have faced equity and access issues and filed lawsuits against USDA for its discriminatory practices and lending programs. The study also found women make up about 30 percent of beginning producers and large share of farms were women operated in the South in 2017. 
According to the study, for Ozarks at Large, I'm Anna Pope. Tyson Foods will be cutting 10% of corporate jobs and 15% of leadership roles, according to a memo sent out to the company's employees from CEO Donnie King this past week. The company has been experiencing pressure from higher costs, and this round of layoffs comes after the closing of two poultry plants, including one in Van Buren. The company has also consolidated its three headquarters into just one in Springdale, relocating about 1,000 jobs to the area. The Steel Horse Rally begins in Fort Smith tomorrow and goes through Saturday. The motorcycle rally raises donations to support area charities such as Antioch for Youth and Family, the Buddy Smith Home for Veterans, and the Children's Service League. Events throughout the weekend include the Strongman Showdown, a stage with live music at the corner of 6th and Garrison Avenue, and the Thunder Through the Valley Motorcycle Parade Saturday. A detailed schedule of events can be found at thesteelhorserally.com. The Alice L. Walton School of Medicine has announced four new assistant dean positions. Dr. Ken Hopper will be the assistant dean for Health Systems Science Education. Dr. Angela Pierce, the assistant dean of Whole Health Integration. Dr. Kwok Antai, assistant dean for Art and Healing. And Dan Kallenberger as the assistant dean of Admissions, Recruitment, and Whole Health Initiation. The school has also recently appointed seven new faculty members with the goal to hire 12 full-time faculty positions by the opening of the school in 2025. And the Arkansas men's golf program will be the number six seed at the NCAA Salem-South Carolina Regional, taking place May 15th through 17th. This marks the 29th appearance in an NCAA Regional as a team in their 15th consecutive postseason. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. Technology manufacturer ABB in Fort Smith is donating $1 million to the University of Arkansas at Fort Smith. That investment will help the university use post-secondary education programs to create a pipeline of technical talent in western Arkansas. The intent of the investment is to position UAFS as one of the nation's leading advanced manufacturing educational institutions. ABB recently announced that it would invest $170 million in manufacturing and distribution operations in 2023. In early 2011, Switzerland-based ABB acquired what was then Fort Smith-based Baldor Electric Company. ABB's U.S. business unit is now headquartered in Fort Smith. You can learn more about this story on our website at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create health care solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. There is a big undertaking right now for recipients of Arkansas's Medicaid program. Ineligible beneficiaries will lose coverage for the first time in three years 
after April 30th as Arkansas exits the COVID-19 public health emergency. The Department of Human Services has started making the removals as a result of the Federal Consolidated Appropriations Act that was signed into law last December. It allows states after March 31st to begin dropping Medicaid recipients who are no longer eligible. All beneficiaries who have not had a renewal in the past 12 months will be redetermined. State law requires the work to be completed in six months. To discuss all of those changes, Roby Brock spoke recently with Craig Wilson. He is the Health Policy Director for the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. I want you to explain for people who don't understand what the word disenrollment means. It doesn't come into the vocabulary on a regular basis, but it is a big undertaking happening in Arkansas's Medicaid program. Just kind of explain generally what is happening. Yeah, it's a massive undertaking, and um, it's not just Arkansas who uh, is doing this. It's every state across the nation. Uh, as, as part of the congressional actions during the, the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, they recognized that uh, many people were going to be in need. They were going to be disrupted in their jobs. They were going to need coverage uh, through public programs. And so Congress offered states some enhanced funding uh, to be able to cover additional people through the Medicaid program. Now that we're coming to the end of that, uh, beginning on April 1st, every state is facing um, this massive undertaking for disenrolling individuals who otherwise aren't eligible anymore. Uh, clearly there was need at the beginning, uh, but the requirement for states to take that additional funding uh, was that they maintained continuous coverage throughout the pandemic. Um, and the, the date ending for April 1, uh, states can begin disenrolling uh, individuals from the program are no longer started that process. Absolutely. What do we know about that population? Is I mean, do we have an estimate of how many people are going to get disenrolled, and what are their options once they are disenrolled, if they have yeah. any? So yeah, so there will be some people who are appropriately disenrolled. I mean, you think in three years you've got a lot of people aging out of the program. You've got a lot of people who have maybe obtained jobs and are increasing in their income. Uh, so there are people who moved out of state. Uh, so there will be some people who were appropriately disenrolled. There will, of course, be people who fall through the cracks as well. We know this is a very mobile population. Uh, they move around a lot. Um, the, the qualified health plans that are covering the Medicaid expansion population um, have good documentation of how uh, mobile this population is. So they'll fall through the cracks because they will not realize that they right. have been disenrolled and need to re-enroll in some other right. option. Despite contact from the Medicaid program right. and, and contractors who are working with them to, to do outreach and education. Um, the state Medicaid program is estimated about 15 to 30 percent of about 400,000 who they've, they've done redetermination on uh, might be disenrolled. Um, you know, that estimate is, is pretty well in line with an Urban Institute study that estimates about 19% uh, will be disenrolled. So you've got probably about 200,000 who will come off of the Medicaid rolls. Some of those will have options to enroll in job-based coverage. Uh, some will have options to enroll with um, some enhanced subsidies through the health insurance marketplace. It's gonna be critical that we connect folks with coverage uh, during this disruptive time period, which you know the state's gonna be doing this over six months. So it's a kind of a crammed time frame. Um, and 
for many people, that's going to be disruptive, including providers who are serving these populations. Uh, a, a line of rhetoric that I hear a lot is, so I think there's about 1.1 million mm -hmm. Arkansans on the Medicaid rolls, and yeah. that includes expansion as well as general Medicaid. Right. That that's too many, and I'm not arguing that it's not too many, but how does one arbitrarily or... Uh, using data to decide what is not too many and what is too many. I mean, is it should we have two hundred thousand people on Medicaid? Should we have two million people on Medicaid? What's well? How do you, how do you arbitrarily decide what's enough to have on Medicaid? Well, and I, I, it won't be arbitrary. I don't think um, clearly they will all go through an eligibility redetermination process, and if they fit the requirements from an income standpoint, from a disability standpoint, from a diagnosis standpoint, uh, for pregnancy, for example, um, then those people will remain eligible. So in that sense, it's not at all arbitrary. Um, clearly, we're a low-income state, so you would expect to have more people uh, on the Medicaid program um, when you've got a lower income state. What has to happen for those people to lift up? They have to get job jobs that pay more income and have health benefits or is there another solution? So, yeah, I mean, it, clearly you want uh, people working up the economic ladder. Um, Medicaid is intended to be a safety net, um, and that's exactly the way it worked during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so that's what, you, that's what you want it to be, hopefully. What are some other things that you think ought to be uh, on a call to deal with in terms of Medicaid stability and, and finding ways to make that program work more efficiently. Well, this governor has clearly wanted to tackle education and prison reform, um, and those are two big areas uh, of spending for uh, the state budget. Healthcare is, an, is another one, right? Yeah. Um, so that's probably something that they'll take a look at and, and have a different perspective, as is the case with every new administration. Um, it's not lost on me that um, it was just this week, April 23rd, uh, that uh, the private option was signed into law of Medicaid expansion here in Arkansas 10 years ago. Um, and that has worked well for us. Um, you know, we, we, unlike our surrounding states, have not had hospital closures like they've seen, uh, more than 50 in our surrounding states. We've had a stable insurance market by using this premium assistance innovative model. And so, um, you know, it's 10 years in. So looking at that um, and other parts of the Medicaid program to gain efficiencies is something that any new administration will and, and should do. That is Craig Wilson with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement discussing changes in the state's Medicaid program with Roby Brock. That interview is online over on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. In other news this week, Rebecca Hurst and Jim Smith have left Little Rock-based business law practice Rose Law Firm to work for Tulsa-based Connor & Winters as partners in the firm's Fayetteville office. Their departure comes a little more than a year after Rose Law Firm's acquisition of their practice, Smith Hurst. Huntsville-based poultry carrier Lou Thompson & Son Trucking was recently acquired by Covenant Logistics Group of Chattanooga, Tennessee for about $100 million. In 2022, Lou Thompson generated about $64 million in revenue. And Northwest Arkansas National Airport reported 80,742 emplanements in March. That's the number of passengers flying out of the airport. That is the best March emplanement number at the airport 
since opening in 1998. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio with Timothy Dennis. Timothy, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well. Timothy, friend of the show and 4029's chief meteorologist, Darby Bybee, yesterday said, I can now say with confidence any risk for additional frost in the northwest Arkansas and Arkansas River Valley the rest of the season is entirely over. So if Darby says it, it must be true, and that means it's time to go watch some live shows in all varieties of or, the outdoors. if you prefer, you can just watch the broccoli grow, too. <laughs> That's very true. But since we are here, let's talk about music. Yes. Tonight, Smoke and Barrel Tavern in Fayetteville, they're going to have an indie and alternative rock show. They're featuring the band's Unwed Sailor mm-hmm. from Tulsa, mm-hmm. Zahara from L.A., and the local band Modeling. Nice. for that show's $10. Starts at 8 o'clock tonight. Again, that's at Smoke and Barrel in downtown Fayetteville. Moving ahead to tomorrow night, George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is going to have the Michigan-based electronic artist Rekno in the house. Cover is $20 in advance, goes up to $25 at the door, starts at 9 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at George's in Fayetteville. Happening kind of across the street at Kingfish tomorrow night, they are going to have a couple of local artists on stage, including Sawyer Hill and Sarah Lothan. Mm -hmm. That gets underway at about 9 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at Kingfish in Fayetteville. Happening up in Bentonville, Bike Rack Brewing Company having the next installment of their Patio Music series. This week, they are featuring the local pop and alt-rock cover band, The Phase. Mm-hmm. Starts at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, again at Bike Rack Brewing Company in Bentonville. Bike Rack was the most recent location of uh, the lunch hour. That's correct, yeah. and I believe that'll be coming out in the next few weeks. Nice. Also, you mentioned outdoor music. Uh-huh. Walmart Amp is getting underway this week. Yes, it is. Tomorrow night, they're going to have a show featuring Red Dirt and Americana from Parker McCollum. Mm-hmm. Joining him on that bill are Larry Fleet and local superstar J.D. Clayton. Nice. Tickets start at 30.50. That starts at about 7.30 tomorrow night, again at the Walmart app in Rogers. Still in Rogers, it's also time for Butterfield Stage to start their summer music season. Sure is. Friday night, they're featuring the local regional Mexican band Proyecto Tumbado. Mm. That is a free show. Starts at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at the Butterfield Stage in downtown Rogers. Moving over to Eureka Springs tomorrow night. The auditorium is going to have Melissa Etheridge in the house. That's right, yeah. Big, big kid. Yeah.
tickets are a little bit on the higher side at $90 uh-huh. for what's left. Uh, and that starts at 7.30 tomorrow night again at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs. It's a great venue to see her at, too. Yeah. I, it's been a minute since I've been to the Auditorium, but any show in that space, I feel like, is it going to be a good, good show. It does. Did you yeah. know that John Philip Sousa was the like opening act for that venue? I did not. That's amazing. Yeah. From John Philip Sousa to Melissa Etheridge. I like it. I like it. Moving on, Temple Live in Fort Smith tomorrow night is going to have a rap show featuring Tech Nine. Mm, I remember Tech Nine. Yeah, that it's still around. back. <laughs> Tickets start at $25. That starts at 8 o'clock tomorrow night. Again, that's at Temple Live in Fort Smith. Okay, moving on to Saturday. George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is having an event they're calling the Feel Better Bash. They're featuring bands Rochelle Bradshaw and Hip Motion, The One Ounce Jig, and Rachel Evans. Mm-hmm. Tickets are $15. Starts at 8.30 Saturday night again at George's in Fayetteville. Also happening in Fayetteville on Saturday, starts a little bit earlier, is the Amplify Festival. Oh, that's right. Starts at noon, uh, featuring music, panel discussions, mentorship sessions, art, much more. Music will include performances from Bonnie Montgomery, Justin Peter Kinkle Schuster, Adam Fawcett, and others. Wish you could see me now. So I'll sit for you good. Tickets start at $25. Again, that starts at about noon on Saturday at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville. For $25, that's kind of a steal. It really kind of is, and you may learn something, too, through some of those panel discussions. Okay, happening up in Rogers Saturday evening, back at Butterfield Stage, they are going to feature the Arkansas-based jazz and funk band, the Rodney Block Collective. Hmm. Also a free show. Gets underway at 8 o'clock Saturday night, again at the Butterfield Stage in Rogers. Over in Eureka Springs Saturday night, Got a Hold Brewing is going to welcome back Shiloh Molina and the Honky Talk Flame. Love that. Yeah. That uh, gets underway at 6 o'clock Saturday, again at Got a Hold Brewing in Eureka Springs. Okay, Jim, make ahead to Sunday. George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville is going to have an EP release show for Corey McKelvey. Nice. Uh, it's an EP titled Other Side of the Mountain. She recorded it over the past year or so at Homestead Recording here in Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Really good stuff. She's joined on that bill by Sky Pollard and Dr. Junior. Cover is $10. Starts at 7 o'clock Sunday evening again at George's in Fayetteville. Happening a little bit earlier in the day Sunday over in Eureka Springs, Got a Hold Brewing is going to welcome back Wesley Allen and the Modern August. Mm-hmm. Good alternative Americana band. Say what you want, say what you want. You know I don't believe you. We say that there's nothing wrong. Say what you want, say what you want. That starts at 4 o'clock Sunday afternoon again at Gotahold Brewing in Rickus Springs. Even earlier in the afternoon on Sunday, Ozark Folkways in Winslow is going to have a concert from Tim Erickson. Mm-hmm. She's pretty bird. She warbles. 
as she flies. She never says cuckoo till the fourth day of July. If you're unfamiliar, he's a musician a composer, a musicologist, and professor from Massachusetts. He has the distinction of being maybe the only person who's shared a stage with Kurt Cobain and Doc Watson, although I don't think that was simultaneous. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a fascinating show if it was. I mean, I'd, I'd be in for <laughs> I'd it. go to that. He was also part of a folk punk band called Cordelia's Dad. Uh-huh. Cover for that show at Ozark Folkways is $10. Again, that starts at 1.30 down at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. Okay, Monday night. George's in Fayetteville is going to have the Kentucky-based contemporary folk musician and songwriter Tom Berlin in the house. Joined on that bill by the indie folk band from New York, Trace Mountains. Tickets are $16 in advance, go up to $18 at the door. Starts at 8 o'clock Monday night again at George's in Fayetteville. And then jumping all the way ahead to next Thursday, Butterfield Stage in Rogers is going to have a local showcase Thursday featuring the local bands Endfall, Monk is King, Fight Dream, and Townhouse Fire. Mm-hmm. That being at Butterfield Stage, it is a free show. Starts at 6 o'clock next Thursday again at the Butterfield Stage in Rogers. And then... Also next Thursday is the start of Spaceberry at the farm in Eureka Springs. That's right. So stay tuned for that. Yes. Timothy Dennis, never frosty. Always (laughs) delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. KUAF is giving away tickets to the 2023 Spaceberry Music Festival, May 11th through the 13th on the farm in Eureka Springs. This three-day jam and funk festival welcomes Arkansas, Forgotten Space, Flinkwick, and more. Winners announced on Friday, May 5th during Ozarks at Large. KUAF.com for registration and more information. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of Maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 musicians from around the world, presenting works by Brahms and Beethoven May 16th and Respighi's Roman Trilogy on May 20th. Tickets and more at artisphereFestival.org. The KUAF podcast The R Word returned with its second season last week. The season two premiere features a live conversation from Fayetteville Public Library with author Greg Thompson and podcast host Lowell Taylor to discuss Greg's co-authored book Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. Greg is from Charlottesville, Virginia, and begins his book discussion in 1967 with another book, Where Do We Go From Here? by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Some of you are familiar with that book. Um, it was the topic of his last speech to the SCLC in August of um, of '67, and in the opening essay to what this book that was published posthumously, I want to just read you uh, something that he says. He's talking about how Lyndon Johnson had sort of celebrated uh, this notion that America had dealt the last blow to racism in its midst, and then he talks about what the state of things is a year later. This is a quoting Lyndon Johnson. Um, when at the, uh, the passage of the voting rights bill. He says, Today is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. Today we strike away the last major shackle of fierce and ancient bonds. King. One year later, some of the people who had been brutalized in Selma and who were present at the Capitol ceremonies were leading marchers in the suburbs of Chicago 
amid the rain of rocks and bottles, among burning automobiles, to the thunder of jeering thousands, many of them waving Nazi flags. A year later, the white backlash had become an emotional electoral issue in California, Maryland, and elsewhere, and in several southern states, men long regarded as political clowns had become governors or only narrowly missed election, their magic achieved with a witch's brew of bigotry, prejudice, half-truths, and whole lies. During that year, white and Negro civil rights workers have been murdered in several southern communities, and the swift and easy acquittals that followed for the accused shocked much of the nation, but sent a wave of unabashed triumph through southern segregationist circles. A year later, Ramparts Magazine was asserting, quote, after more than a decade of the civil rights movement for black American in Harlem, Haynesville, Baltimore, uh, it, these cities are worse off today than they were 10 years ago. The movement's leaders know it, and it is the source of their despair. The movement is in despair because it has been forced to recognize that the Negro Revolution is a myth. That's, he's writing this two years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, after Lyndon Johnson declares that we had triumphed over racism. Now, 50 years to the month after, after King wrote that, uh, I watched Klansmen. Uh, at, in the Unite the Right rally, march through the streets of my neighborhood in Charlottesville, Virginia, and kill a woman outside of my office by running over her with a car. Three years after that, we watched George Floyd get murdered, and we watched Amer white Americans change the subject to CRT in its wake. And I think now this question that King was asking in 67 is the question that I have had now, which is, where do we go from here? What, what, are, what, what are we going to do from here? Um, and once again, I think we're faced with this question. What is going to be required of us uh, as human beings if we are to heal from the longstanding and destructive litany of hatred that's come from American racism? Where do we go from here? I'm going to headline where I think we go from here. I think we go all in on reparations. But where we go from here depends on what you think is happening. What you think is happening and, and what you do depends on what you see. So what I want to do is talk about uh, what I see and what has led me, uh, a southern white man, descendant of Klansmen, who looks like a fly fishing guide, to, uh, <laughs> to the conclusion, the, the solid and life-altering conclusion, that unless we are serious about reparations, we will never heal in this country. Um, when we think about this, uh, when we think about what we should do, I want to just give a, a, a working definition of racism that most of you will recognize immediately. I want to say that it has three parts. First, it is the, the designation of human beings uh, as, as distinct from one another based on putatively fixed biological capacities, okay, our biological characteristics. That's the first thing, this distinction among these bi putatively biological fixed characteristics. Secondly, the assignment of value to people in terms of their intellectual capacities, moral capacities, et cetera, based on those fixed distinctions. And third, a social assignment, pushing those who are deemed less intelligent, less morally fruitful, et cetera, et cetera, to the margins of a society while pushing others to the center. That's what I mean by racism. It's not exactly an ele elevator definition, but you know what I'm talking about. And I think that that'll be important if we wanna, if we wanna talk about that in the Q&A. That's where I'm coming from when I talk about race in America. 
Now, when people talk about racism, I want to, it's important to know what we see. Some people see racism as a personal prejudice. That is to say, it's something that I have in my heart. And if that's what, is, what racism is, then what racism requires is what the Christian church would call personal repentance. If it's in my heart, then we need to repent, correct? Others say, no, it's actually relational estrangement. It's, uh, racism is really about relational, the, uh, a relational breach between human beings. And if that is what is necessary, um, if, if that's what, it, what racism is, then what's necessary is racial reconciliation. And some of you have been involved in movements around racial reconciliation for a number of years. That's certainly been true in the white evangelical space, at least performatively since the 1980s. Others say, no, actually, racism is not just personal, it's not just relational, it's actually institutional. And so uh, you can think about uh, the, the mass incarceration, you can think about the criminal justice institutions or educational, et cetera, and you can say, all right, well, then what we need to do is institutional reform. It's a discrete series of institutional reforms. I believe all of those, all of those are true. Each one of those is true in, in, in respect. We do need personal change. We do need relational healing. We do need institutional reform. But racism is much more than any of those things. It is a cultural pathology. It is a disorder at the heart of this culture, uh, what I would call a cultural disorder. I'm drawing on Augustine and his use of ordered loves there. This is a culture in which racism is not just in our hearts and our relationships and our institutions, but it is in the structure of our language, the structures of meaning that we assigned. It is in, um, it is in the very structure of our psychologies that we can look at one another and make these distinctions habitually without effort and without consciousness. That is a sign of something deeply pathological and that is a disorder. So that's the first thing that I see. So I just wanna say what the first thing that led me to racism was understanding as I marched my way through these various accounts of what racism is, sorry, the thing that led me to reparations, as I marched through these various accounts of racism was recognizing that personal repentance, racial reconciliation and institutional reform are not sufficient because that is not what racism fundamentally has been in the West. Greg Thompson is the co-author of Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and repair. He spoke in the Fayetteville Public Library with Lowell Taylor, the host of the KUAF podcast, The R Word. The full episode is available now, which also includes a Q&A session moderated by Dr. Karee Banton and Dr. Trisha Posey. You can listen at KUAF.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leo Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. We open Sound Perimeter today with the flower duet from Leo Delip opera Lacme, in the voices of acclaimed singers soprano Sabine Deviel and mezzo-soprano Marianne Crevasa. 
The Flower Duet is one of the most popular pieces of classical music, not only because of its beauty, but also because of its use in popular culture, from commercials to movies. The opera Lakme is set in British India during the mid-19th century and tells the unfortunate love story of Lakme, the daughter of a Brahmin high priest and Gerald, a British army officer. The flower duet happens in the first act of the opera when Lakme and her servant are collecting flowers by the river. This duet calls for us to smell the roses, jasmines, and lotuses immersed in a simple spring scene by a shore surrounded by birds and sunlight. a very famous flower duet from Leo de Lief's opera Lacme, sang by soprano Sabine de Vielle and mezzo-soprano Marianne Crebassa, and accompanied by the Sickles Orchestra under the baton of François-Javier Roth. American composer Viet Quong wrote Electric Aroma in 2017, inspired by a line from Pablo Picasso's poetry. I knew Picasso as a painter, a sculptor, printmaker, ceramicist, and stage designer, and one of the greatest and most influential artists of the 20th century and the creator of the Cubism art movement, but knew little about his poems. 
Kwong, American composer born in 1990, writes a tango-sounding piece based on Picasso's line from 1936 that reads, quote, an electric aroma, a most disagreeable noise. The name of this piece is Electric Aroma. For this wild work, Kwong uses electronic-inspired sounds translated to saxophone, clarinet, piano, and percussion. That was the beginning of Viet Quang's Electric Aroma, performed by Dylan Ward saxophone, Michael McFerry clarinet, Phoebe Wu piano, and Matthew Quang percussion at the 8 Blackbird Creative Lab in 2017. Called alluring and wildly inventive by the New York Times, Viet Quang's music has been performed on six continents by a number of soloists and ensembles. Music can take us to weird places, from flower fragrances to electric scents. I hope today's music took you to places beyond sounds, through your nose and your imagination. This is Leo Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a segment dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon.
on tomorrow's edition of Ozarks at Large, we take a peek behind the curtain of making a daily podcast. Here's what's happening. Here's the question I have about it, right? Here's something that's going on that I want to talk about. And then you think about, like, who's asking the right question or what's the question? Who do I want to answer it? Mary Harris is the host of What Next, a daily news podcast produced by Slate. She spoke with me last week about the decision-making process on what to cover now and what to spend an extra day or two to cover. That's tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF. Speaking of podcasts, you can find Ozarks at Large in podcast form in all the usual places. You can find the individual stories produced for the show at ozarksatlarge.com. And you can also subscribe to the Ozarks at Large newsletter. It lands in your email inbox every weekday morning with a roundup of the most recent stories, plus upcoming events and more. You can sign up for the newsletter at kuaf.com slash newsletter. This is 91.3 FM KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Alma, Pea Ridge, and Summers. Contributors today include Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Paul Gatling, Roby Brock, and Leah Uribe. Additional help provided by Anna Pope. Stephanie Brock also produced today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. KUAF's operations director is Pete Hartman. Timothy produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Please stay dry and be well.